Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support ska music. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Welcome to In Defense of Sky. Today's guest is Barry Johnson. He's the singer and guitarist for the indie rock band Joyce Manor and Ska Fanatic. He first discovered the music as a kid in 1996 and got big into it around 2000. Three years later, he formed his own ska punk band, Kid Gruesome. Joyce Manor began in 2008. They released their second album, Of All Things I Will Soon Grow Tired, on Asian Man Records. Even though Joyce Manor does not play ska, Barry's love for the music hasn't died. He maintains that, to this day, ska has been a big influence on him as a songwriter. It was so exciting to find out how much Barry likes ska. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm a big Joyce Manor fan. You know, seeing them and seeing them back in the day before they were really big. I mean, they definitely had not a not a ska vibe, but they had that energy, like that you would get from like an Operation Ivy type recording, yeah. Where where it was frenetic and fast songs and intelligent lyrics, and so it's really cool to see that through line from from those early ska punk days to, to where they wound up. Yeah. You know, you know how this whole thing started too, was that our, our friend, Bob Vielma, he wrote a thing for his blog, you know, a year or two ago about, uh, about Barry and his ska past. And, and it was, I liked it and I read it and I was like working on my book at the time. And I had a chapter about people and their ska past. And I was like, Oh, I, I texted Bob. I was like, do you think Barry would interview me or interview with me for my book? You know, he's like, oh, yeah. And I, you know, I, I did this whole thing where I went, you know, got his number. I kind of had Bob set the whole thing up, you know, kind of nervous, not sure, you know, what Barry was going to be like. But he was so down with it. And he was just like, you know, just so supportive of the project and such an easy, like laid back guy to talk to. Like it, any any sense of it feeling like maybe he was like a celebrity or a bigger musician that just like went away instantly. Yeah. In this conversation, I was so blown away by just how jazzed he was to talk about ska like it, it yeah. felt like if for him it was such a nice break from just having to answer the same questions about his own music and just mm-hmm. being able to like kind of go run rampant and just talk about all the different stuff from that time period and just his own his own history with it and how he presented himself as like a rude boy it was so much fun yeah so Barry, the first time I remember seeing Joyce Manor was at uh, the Bellazzo Gallery in the Mission in San Francisco, and I went to see my friend Danny Bailey's band, 
And then I was going to leave and go get a burrito and come back, but there was no ins and outs of the show. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll, I don't want to miss any of these other bands. So I'll just stay. And then Joyce Manor played next. And I was like, this is great. If I'd left to go get a burrito, I would have missed this band. And do you know, uh, do you know what year that was? Shit. I don't remember this show. That would have been. Was, was it with big kids? Holocaust. Yeah. 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 Okay. I remember now. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the bass player broke a string. And since he's yes. a lefty, no one had, no one had a, a bass for him to use. So he had, yes. he had to straight up change a string mid show. Yeah. That was common. Which is harrowing. Yeah. And, so uh, harrowing. So then I remember I, I like you, I like y'all set so much. I was like, I should buy something. And you had these, the ugliest band t-shirts at the time. You had, yeah. They had like the, it was like that donut bag logo. Oh and man. It was like a brown print on like a tan shirt. Oh and yeah. I like, hideous. I was like, I, I'm never, I was like, I want to buy that, but I'll never wear it. So then oh, I, I tried to buy the, the EP you guys had and you and your bass player were sitting behind your merch table and you, and I was like, how much is this? And you guys were like, just take it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I took it and uh, I loved it. It was the best eight minutes and 34 seconds of music I'd heard in a while. And I think I was so excited about it because it was an organic discovery. It wasn't something that had been pushed to me, you know, through a website or something. Yeah, just, totally. I happened to see this band. So this is yeah. before the first album that started getting some buzz and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah we just had a, a, we just re recorded five songs with our friend Alex, but uh, that recording sounds really good. It was like a, he, he was, when we, when we had booked studio time with him, like it cost money and everything. Like, I think we all had to throw in 50 bucks and we were kind of living super paycheck to paycheck at that point. So like, getting an extra 50 bucks together was like pretty, pretty tough. And, uh, I remember thinking like, all right, this is it. We're actually spending money on recording and, and it was cool. Yeah. And, uh, that, that was like right around the time we got signed to 6131 and I did like a real our first like record and stuff yeah so i remember that came out and i got that and and then i remember flash forward maybe i don't know maybe a year or two and i was at skyler's house skyler worked at asian man yeah and he was having a barbecue and mike park was there and and mike park and i are talking and he just goes oh there's this band joyce manor i think about putting out the record i was like of course you should put out that record what the fuck are you thinking yeah I think he was just kind of saying it. I think it was almost like a humble brag. Like it was probably already a thing, but he was just like, Oh, I've got this band. And yeah. I was stoked. I was like, hell yeah. So then the next time I saw Joyce Manor was when Aaron and I played with your band at bottom of the hill. Yeah. And for some reason, instead of being the weird electronic punk monstrosity, we normally were, we decided we needed to be a nine piece ska band that night. Yeah. Obviously, when you're opening up for Joyce Manor. <laughs> sure. Makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense. And then we yeah, did a ska, yeah. a ska punk cover of Leather Jacket. Yeah, it was great. But the best part was when I talked to you after the show, we were not the first band who had ever done that. No. Uh, you know what? That band's really popular now, too. That kid. I can't remember that kid's name. Sam Kless, maybe, is his name? Okay, he yeah. has a he, he has a band called Just Friends, I think yep. they're called. Yeah, Norbert's yeah. played with them in a garage. There you go. But they're like pretty popular. They're, they're like really popular. popular. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that that was the kid who covered Joyce Manor Ska before Amazing. you. 
He was a pioneer. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I was thinking about it today and, and Jer from Scotty network, they, they covered constant headache recently. Have you heard that? I, oh, of course I've heard it. It's yeah. incredible. So good. It's like such a good uh, treatment of the song and yeah, it's uh it's super flattering and uh, yeah, super just well-engineered and the energy is, is so great. Yeah. It's awesome. Three so stock covers. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask, uh, the first thing, most striking thing I think I noticed about you the first time I saw your band play was your, your black sleeve of tattoos. Oh yeah. That's all blacked out. And I wanted to know, was anything that you blacked out ska related? Oh man, almost like so <laughs> close to being ska, but dude, I kind of wish there was, let me, let me think every tattoo. There, I was kind of hoping you had one of those checkered armbands. Oh Yeah. Or an, or an op Ivy energy, energy guy. I don't have that guy. Uh, but it was so close though. It was a jawbreaker tattoo, which is not ska, but like it's Berkeley and like Berkeley yeah, ska or Oakland. Yeah. It's Gilman, Gilman ska. So like, uh, and then uh, I had just filth lyrics. You know, you know, man, filth. Yeah. Another Gilman re- band. Yeah, totally. And uh, that's so not, nothing ska, but like crust and like, you know, misanthropic alcoholic middle-aged punk pop punk but uh wow. no ska for but uh the thing that i oh well this is kind of ska the thing that i got covered up was i i got this really big like like uh raven and a white rasta guy actually did the tattoo and while he was doing it i was like oh this is very very bad because <laughs> i he didn't really even draw it out i just kind of told him what i wanted and I was like, yeah, you know, you, you, you know what I mean, right? And he's like, yeah, totally, dude, I got you. And then he just started kind of uh, blasting it on me, and it, it, it was so ugly. And just it, while he was doing it, I was like, oh, this is a huge mistake. This is horrible. And uh, that, that was what prompted the uh, – now I have to cover up my whole – half my arm in solid black, which was also kind of a thing my friends were doing. My friend Chad had gone to Brazil and – Heavy black work is very popular there. And he came back with some. And, you know, when you're 19 years old, you're like, well, if he's doing it and that's yeah. cool, I'm going to do it too. And so there's like three or four of us that all got a lot of heavy black work tattoos, like kind of like we were in a weird cult. And we still hang out sometimes and it's kind of weird. We'll, we'll be at the beach and like people kind of look at us like, what's with this group of guys with the blacked out arms? Um, yeah, that's got to be a heavy look. Yeah, but one of the guys, Chad, he tours with us. So we're just like sitting at like a Waffle House in, you know, whatever, Oklahoma. And they're just looking at it like, like what are you guys? Like, what, what is this shit? You know, but actually there's that band 21 Pilots. Mm-hmm. And the dude I think has that. So sometimes I'll be at Taco Bell and the dude will be like, oh, hell yeah, 21 Pilots. And I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> whatever. You know, and I, and I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's why. It's because. It, the, I think the guy's name is Blurry Face. I think it might be a alter ego of one of the guys with 21 Pilots, or maybe he's always that guy. I don't really know. Uh, Davey from AFI also just started blacking out all his tattoos. Yeah, he blacked yeah. out all his uh, Nightmare for Christmas shit. He had like yeah. a bunch of Nightmare for Christmas shit, which he black, he's blacking out, which I, I, you know, I get it. I had a white Rasta guy yeah. to do some nasty nastiness on me, and he had some real <laughs> 90s looking Nightmare for Christmas shit that had to go you know what i mean like you're going on tinder dates or whatever and it's not it's not working for you like like it was then you know 
Yeah, Matt Matt Skiba has a really good um, cover up also, which is actually a cover up of a ska tattoo. Well, you have a skin and pickle tattoo or what? No, he had a he had an Operation Ivy Energy guy. So oh, he actually man. has he has a, he covered it up with a pan a panther head with a mm. scroll, and the scroll underneath it says cover up. Oh, that's cool. Genius. And so I, I asked him about it. This was like 2000 when I asked him about it. I was like, "What's up with this cover up, Matt?" And he was like. Oh, I had the Operation Ivy guy on me, and I was like, well, "You like Operation Ivy, though?" He's like, "I know, but the guy who did it was this horrible racist piece of shit." And oh, so, yeah. while, while I was getting the tattoo, it was just like, you know, I was just hearing him say all this terrible shit. And so, he always hated the tattoo because of this. And so, you fucking got it covered up. Yeah, yeah, you know how it is. Uh, I, I haven't <laughs> got like, like a band tattoo, and in a long time but you know when you're 19 years old you're still kind of used to just buying shit off interpunk and then yeah. you, when you start getting tattoos you're like well i guess i'll just get a fat mustard plug tattoo or some shit you know what i mean <laughs> like you just kind of still in that mode you know of like wearing yeah. your interests your musical interests on your sleeve literally i mean if, if you had to get a ska tattoo now what would you oh get? i haven't i'm actually i have an appointment in a couple of weeks to get it i'm going to orange county to to get it what are you getting just kidding Come on! <laughs> I used to have a good, a good mustard plug shirt though. Actually, um, yeah, I had some like flaming dice on it. So like Grand Rapids in a scroll. I had some like dice. I don't know why there was dice on it, but there's some dice on fire. It's mustard plug. It's cool. This is yeah, like back in the day when you were like a teenager. Yeah, it's, um, it's actually when I met our the bass player of Joyce Manor. We met on a bowling league. We when we were. Summer before eighth grade, going into ninth grade, we both were on a bowling league. So, after like Saturday afternoons, we would go and bowl against other teams. And he was on a, another team, and he wear like he was like a juggalo, so he would have like insane clown posse shit. <laughs> but then also he would have like sometimes he would show up and he'd have like a Millen Collins shirt or like or like AFI. So he was kind of like a little confused, and um, or not confused, but just like you know. Oh, he was into a lot of different stuff. And uh, so then I went up to, we talked about punk and yeah, he's like, Oh, cool. I like your mustard plug shirt. And I was like, thanks man. I like your Millen Collins shirt. And then we've been friends since then from eighth grade. Nice. Now, did yeah. you guys have a ska band together for a while? Uh, my first ever band that ever played shows, like the first band I ever had was like, it was trying to sound like weaker thans, but it kind of sounded like Blink-182 and also like not music. Cause None of us could really play, but we were trying something so ambitious as like the weaker thins. And then I kind of didn't play music junior year of high school. And then senior year of high school, I thought it'd be fun if like me and these like street punk kids I was hanging out with, uh, they were into like Cox Bar and Operation Ivy. And that was the kind of stuff, the music that they liked that I was into, but they were also into like nausea and like like Os Rotten, which I was bad and I didn't like. But I liked Cox Bar and I liked Up Ivy. And so I was like, oh, we should start a band that sounds like Op Ivy. So I had a band that sounded exactly like Operation Ivy. Um, like uh, like, re- like a really, really blatant Operation Ivy ripoff. Like pretty good one, though. Like, pretty convincing. And we had some like catchy, catchy little songs. Um, and and uh, you were like, we were the song, you, did, you did the songwriting I, yeah, and stuff? I wrote, yeah, those were the first songs I really wrote that, uh, that really kind of got me, got me started on songwriting. Did you did you cover any Operation Ivy songs? In yeah, band? we covered "Yelling Yelling in My Ear." Nice. Um, we covered "Yelling in My Ear," and then it got really weird really fast. Like towards the end of the band, we covered "The Smiths," 
And, but it was, it sounded like Operation Ivy still, but I was like, that would be cool if we did just haven't earned it yet, baby, but like the op, op Ivy, like it was like, I don't know. It was, it was a ska punk cover of the Smiths. Um, that sounds great actually. Yeah. yeah. You could like put that on YouTube now and it would be like, you know, viral or whatever. Um, but uh, it was not great. It was horrible. And, uh, but that's kind of how I learned how to write songs. Did that band have horns? No, we were like more like suicide machines. It was like it was more on the punk punk side of things, and the lyrics were like very vaguely political. Like I had no idea what I was talking about, but I was like, "It's got to stop," or like "Shit's got to change." You know what I mean? Like it was just kind of like this ain't this ain't no good. You know, it was like Bush era. It was just it was in the air, you know. So, so, so your first your first songs you ever wrote were ska. So you basically yeah. learned how to write songs through the lens of ska. Absolutely. And my friend, Dan Matsura, I, I was writing the songs and I could play ska guitar like pretty good. And then I, the bass, I would just play ska guitar rhythm on bass. I would just go like, do, 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 like, you know, but it wasn't a walking bass line. And he explained to me, it's like, no, the bass line should like walk. And he showed me that. And that like opened my eyes musically a lot. And then I started hearing that in like the Beatles. And I started hearing that like elsewhere. And I was like, oh, that's what's happening. Like the bass is walking through a chord you know what i mean like it's not like shredding you, you know what i mean like it, it kind of just that that just made music make a lot more sense to me and i owe that to dan Matsura. so like yeah because like the the role the bass plays in ska and reggae is, is much different than what it plays in like rock or punk or metal typically yeah totally and that that's where you kind of were starting from absolutely yeah i well i would write i would and it, it was like this cool like dynamics that i learned too where like uh, when you write like a punk chorus and then like you bring it down for like the verse and you do this kind of thing where the, the bass line moves and it does and it's more static for the chorus to be more impactful like uh, I feel like it, t- it takes a lot of people or like some people just never really learn that and when they you just play in like a regular rock band or like a I don't know like a, yeah like a metal band the bass is just kind of following the guitar to kind of there's put some more low end in there, but it doesn't really contribute anything melodically or like a counter rhythm or a counter melody or any kind of underpinning. And yeah, you kind of learn how to like weave around a vocal melody. You kind of learn when you're stepping on a vocal melody and yeah, that's, it's, it's super crucial. I think it's like, they should teach it at schools. The, the, the bass too. And in, in, in that kind of music is, yeah, it, it, it sets up the vocals in a lot of ways that like they work together in a way that's different than what the guitar is doing. Yeah. It's, and, it's the chord, you know, like it's, it's your, that, what that moving around the vocal melody that, that like is the, is the mood of the song. Yeah. And, and I know you told me when we, when we interviewed for the book, how it was like, you felt like that was like a really critical part of your songwriter, your songwriting as, you know, Joyce Manor was that this was sort of your, the foundation that you learned from. Oh Yeah. Yeah, there's there's some great uh, bass lines I wrote on uh, the first record that are pretty. You could put them in a ska song really easily, um, mm-hmm. and some kind of wanky stuff. Like when once I kind of stopped having to be constrained into the uh, ska rhythm, you know what I mean? Like I could get kind of it, it's almost like prog, but it's just because I'm just like a kid and I'm kind of crazy with my ideas. You know, like no ideas to too wacky and a little bit in early Joyce Manor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just 
I guess just thinking about the role of the bass is I'm doing that more than maybe some people. So um, when did you first get into ska or discover ska, I guess? Uh, damn, that's tough. It was so big. Uh, where I was, so it was, it was when it was like all over the radio and stuff for you. Man, I feel like what, it might've been a little what, earlier. I think, I think uh, uh, like Southern California, Torrance. Uh, okay. Yeah. Like we're down near Redondo beach kind of, I don't know if you've ever been there. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, I want to, I have a memory of being my, my, I had some neighbors from Estonia and they were having a party and there was like a younger guy there who like knew about punk. And I remember just kind of asking him punk questions about punk or whatever. And he told me about this band called the Boston's and he's like, yeah, they got this singer Dickie and like, he's crazy, man. Like, and I was like, oh, okay. And I was just soaking up everything he was saying, you know, like this. And uh, I remember buying a, I think I bought a Mighty Mighty Boston CD from Best Buy. And it was when they were on a major label still, but it was like, they they were not, an um, impression that I get had not happened yet. But, yeah. uh, and I liked it okay. I remember it, that was not the time when I like what went all in on Ska. I was like, oh yeah, this is kind of, I, I bought Devil's Night Out and it's pretty weird. And like, uh, it's got like a lot of metal on it and the ska and punk are not married very seamlessly yet. Like, cause they're, they're so early on, you know, like, um, but yeah, then I think then, then like Goldfinger and Suicide Machines and Less Than Jake and all that kind of had its moment. And then I was interested in it for a second. And then from there, I kind of got into, uh, hardcore. I was into like, AFI and the Misfits and uh, just kind of, I don't know, Napster came out. So me and my friends were like downloading Crass and uh, Dennis Leary stand up and like weird shit. Like, like, like we were just into general kind of punk and I don't know. Uh, then you, my friend David Morrill got me like, we got really into ska and I got really into Asian man records and then started going to ska shows and kind of became part of the ska scene. But yeah, kind of happened in Blitz. What were some of the early ska shows you remember going to? First one that was the first one I went to was Big D, ME330, Slow Gherkin, Lawrence Arms at Chain Reaction. And it was like so good and so fun. And I mean, those bands were always great, but it, I feel like it was in their prime. You know, I think ME330 was touring on their self titled. Uh, Slow Gherkin were doing Shed Some Skin and uh, Big D were, were Good Luck had like just come out and um, yeah I was just like uh, the show was so fun I skanked the whole time uh, I discovered that like I should buy Chuck Taylors because like everyone there was wearing Chuck Taylors and I was like okay I gotta get some of these shoes and I started wearing those and I kind of felt like I was in this group now you know what i mean i'm like okay yeah i'm gonna i started going to all these ska shows and met i had like my friends at shows and stuff and it was really really awesome part of uh from like 14 to honestly like probably 14 to 16 like those two years there i was going on a ton of shows in defense of ska will return in a moment Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. 
These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So before you had seen it live, you were a fan, but was the seeing it live that first time, did it completely like alter your perception of it or your, your fandom of it? Um, I remember seeing it in the movie Clueless and being like, that's that, that I remember being moved by the ska scene in that. I remember like the bands, the way the band like kind of carried themselves on, on stage. I was like, that's fucking cool. Um, but yeah, the, that first show, um was yeah it was fucking great like big d played first and they were they were like still a 10-piece band and they were incredible like i don't i I like i still like that record okay like it's it's a little i don't know the some of like the lyrics are a little bit of an eye roll to me now but uh their energy at that time was unbelievable and they still had two singers and they were like kind of doing the beastie boys thing where they were trading off a lot and it was uh fucking amazing yeah, it was that was unbelievable. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. Then the Lawrence Arms, Lawrence Arms. I remember being kind of bored during their set. People weren't really into it, and uh, they were like a lot less compelling. They were just a three piece, and uh, you couldn't hear the vocals really. I remember, I remember th- hearing that like other vo- other vocals off, and then uh, MZ Thirty was fucking um, unbelievably good, like oh, so yeah. fucking good. And then Slugurk and were. They played last because I think they got there late. Um, it was supposed to be MU headlining, but uh, I guess Sogrican like got there got there late, so they played last. Um, and they they were unbelievable too. I, I kind of got I got more into them afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. I I didn't get to go to shows quite as young as that because of my my mom being religious and stuff. But I was um, when I was starting to get to go to shows, like I was just really really interested in how music sounded live you know i was re- i really loved it a lot but it was definitely ska was the one when i started seeing ska shows that was the music where i was just like i just got shivers up my spine and and just like it was just i was completely in the moment and it was just like i was on another planet almost like just the way it sounded and the way it felt in my body and stuff yeah totally um yeah i you know cuz i guess that is a pretty I would say that didn't really feel like a ska show. Do you know what I mean? Like MU330 opened, or sorry, Big D opened up with like the song Myself, which is like, it's like a punk song almost, you know? So, and it was like, it was, it was like kind of a skank pit. But, uh, so I don't know. What, what was your first show? What was the first ska, ska show you saw? Aaron? Uh, skank, and, skank and Pickle at, um, in Santa Clara, California. Okay. So that's, that would, they were, they were doing all sorts of stuff though too, huh? Cause they were doing like yeah. funk and metal yeah, well. that was like because that was back when they were um, still had Mike Mattingly, and that so they were doing it. It was more, it was more, it was more diverse, and, and like it was a little bit more of a stage show as well. It was more like yeah. props and gimmicks, which totally was blew my mind at the time. I was just oh, like, totally. I didn't even um, I didn't even fathom the idea that bands could be almost theatrical as well as musical. Yeah, totally. So, so I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and then like M- M330 had this kind of like rock like but is, yeah. they're almost kind of like an like a arena band in like a 
Oh, wait, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, like Dan would do his, like, we're Emmy 330 from St. Louis, Missouri. Like, he was, like, very, yeah. like, kind of like a machismo to it. But, uh, and, like, the, just the JCA 100, like, cranked and, like, it was, yeah, kind of has, like, a, yeah, I don't know. I just loved it. I loved it. I loved because I, I kind of, but I feel like getting into that kind of stuff and getting more into Asian Man Records, it almost kind of, like, got me into indie rock, too. Because I remember mm-hmm. then getting into like Korea Girl and getting into like some of the indie rock stuff on on Asian Man. Yeah, I mean that was the interesting thing about Asian Man at that era was that it was slowly, you know, because Slapstick had ha- had been an early signee to the label, and then when they broke up, it was like blowing on a dandelion. It formed all these different bands. Yeah, and most of them ended up being kind of more of the indie rock vein. Yeah, you like Tuesday and shit like that. Tuesday and you had um the honor system and you had alkaline Trail. honor system yeah honor system was oh, I fucking loved that one song yeah um it was like I I we, me and my friend Brian McGirl used to like ups, religiously watch the uh 10 minutes to Ogikapo station or whatever the like mm-hmm. video comp we uh an honor system had a video on that and that that song was great but yeah that that kind of stuff I feel like had a, had a really big impact on me and that was just kind of through asian man yeah so that was like definitely the through line there it's just getting getting into ska then finding asian man and then moving yeah. through to, to the more indie indie side of just get just getting the getting the comps you know what i mean and like the comps were so varied and it didn't it did kind of feel like mike's taste you know what i mean and mike did does have really good taste and so it was like oh cool like i just kind of get a little it's like this this dude made me a cool mix you know and being like an impressionable kid like dude i, I remember trying to get into some horrible fucking music like os rotten and shit you know what I mean? or, or worse than that like uh i don't know just total just, chaos dude just, oh yeah total chaos uh, or like <laughs> or like fucking i remember i remember trying to get into emo like i knew there was this music called emo and i remember dialing on napster this band no motive and it was just oh, yeah. fucking yeah. boring and just like I just remember trying to like it. So I actually did the same thing with Jawbreaker too. Like I knew they were an emo band and I think I downloaded something off like Bivouac and my brain couldn't even like hear it as music. And like to this day, when I try to listen to that record, I'm kind of like, I can't process like the guitar tone. Yeah. The, you know, just even just how it sounds like it doesn't really, it's hard for me to even know what's going on kind of. Yeah. I don't know. I feel that uh, for sure. But those Asian man comps got me were so 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 much good so many good songs. So one of the reasons I brought up the the EP earlier on the um or I don't know how you would categorize it EP or demo. Yeah, we call, we were calling it EP then, and then now we've kind of started referring to it as the demo, just because other people have talked about yeah. it as our, our demo. Yeah. So the thing that struck me the most about it when I when I first heard it was that the it was these super catchy songs with all this melody packed into like you know, really abrasive, fast punk, but then all the songs were super short, which harkened to me back to, to more like ska punk sort of feel like these faster type songs that are super short and concise and get in and get out. I mean, it felt very like, to me, it felt like, uh, I could definitely feel like the operation Ivy influence in that sort of thing. Totally. Yeah. The uh, op Ivy songs are super short. Where else was the short songs coming from? Like a power I mean, I feel violence like that was kind just of the mentality of, of those sort of bands, just play fast. 
We also know a bunch of power violence too. Like like around that time, like one of, one of the guys who was in, so after my band, the sound of just like Op Ivy, I had me and Matt from Joyce Manor had a band called the English work standard. And, um, one of the, 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 the guitar player for that band, like he, he went on to play in power violence bands and he was way into that. And so me and Matt kind of were, were pretty into that stuff too. So it's like, you know, those songs are super, super, super short. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. That was just natural to us. And it, it no one kind of really said anything about it till I don't, I, no, I guess it's always kind of been like a talk point that the songs are short, but. I don't know. I don't know how to do anything else. I, I, mean, I think it's, it's it was one of my biggest selling points when I first. Oh, cool. It was like the, that that the great. songs were short, or that the album was short, or both. It's just, just that the songs were short. Like I, well, I and I love that there were like these big choruses and big memorable parts in the songs. I mean, I remember the first time I saw the band. Like I could pick out two or three of the songs when I listened to the recording from just seeing them live, which mm-hmm. is great. Like that's you know. Definitely oh, a sign of a, of a strong band where <laughs> you don't you don't have to have it like you know burned into your head a bunch of times. You can just hear it once and it's immediately all right. I got that. Like that's awesome. yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember that. I remember that from I saw Toys That Kill open for Propagandi, and I'd never heard them before. And I saw Toys That Kill, and I remember like leaving the show and having one of their songs stuck in my head just from seeing them, you know. And I was like, I could like still hear the song, you know what I mean? Like just I just saw them play it once, but I was like, damn, that's. So catchy, so good. Yeah, I remember when I got into when I got into Guided by Voices in the '90s. It was like that's, I love that so much. I love how they were just like, you know what? We're gonna write this really amazing verse and chorus, and then you, know, you don't need any more. You don't need us to do it a, 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 three more times. Yeah, just, to, to prove to me, for me to prove prove to you that it's a chorus. Like you know, it's a chorus to, when you hear it the first time. Like, well, that's the yeah. fucking chorus, obviously. You know. So yeah, there's um, just, here's just a minute, a minute and ten second song, and it, you know, like an just an anthem of a song. <laughs> there's also like there was also like a bit of like ignorance on my part as far as like I, I've kind of been shown now or kind of figured out now how to um, get a little more out of a song. Like if you you can usually do two verses before. Um, the first chorus will kind of allow you to get a little more mileage out of a song. Um, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, like if you introduce the chorus too soon, you kind of have to wrap it up. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to kind of delay the chorus and then you can get, you can maybe do three choruses or I don't know this. So there's, there's little tricks to kind of, to getting a little more out of a song that I, I'd never, I never learned and didn't come intuitively to me. So my, the way I learned to do is just to write short songs. How, how did you hook up with Asian man to begin with? Was that, um, did you reach out to them or did, did, did they uh, find you? I went to go, my friend Tim, when we were like, I think I was maybe, I was 18 or 19 and I was, it was the band after the band that sounded like Operation Ivy. It was called the English work standard. Um, I was playing in that band and I went to go see, this band called Matt and Kim on their first mm. tour. They were, they were playing on the beach in San Pedro. It was like a generator show down like on the, on the beach. And it was their first tour. And I checked out their MySpace and I was like, yeah, this is kind of, kind of cool. I'll, I'll go. And uh, Mike Park happened to be playing. Like I didn't, I had no idea Mike Park was playing and he, he played solo acoustic. 
And, um, and I was like, whoa, Mike Park, holy shit. Um, a little starstruck, you know, because I'm such a big fan of Asian Man and his bands and all that. And so um, after his set, he was like, uh, does anyone want to give me a ride to the airport? And like, I, I, my, my, my hand like flew up super fast. I was like, Ooh, me, 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 you know, like I'll do it. I'll do it. Expecting like a bunch of other people to like want to take this fucking guy to the airport. Um, and then he's like, okay, cool. You. So I drove, I was driving in the airport and I was super faux pas, but I was playing in my own band, you know, kind of hoping to be like, kid, this is, this is amazing. Like I, you gotta let me put out your record, you know, like, I, I totally thought that's what was going to happen. Like, I was like, oh, he's going to hear this. And he's going to be like, this is incredible. I, I, you know, but he did not have that reaction. He was just kind of like, this is so pun- punishing. You know what I mean? This fucking kid is playing me his horrible fucking band. And drive. I was driving, I was swerving all over the road, trying to like switch the CD, you know what I mean? And uh, it was a mess. And uh, we got Taco Bell. He, he paid for Taco Bell before wow. um, I dropped him wow. off. At LA. I know, right? <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, I was like, all right, well, see you later. And then uh, years later, flash forward, um, I'm playing in Joyce Manor in like, two, this is like 2011, I think. And we did a, a short West Coast tour with Shinobu. We played All, all Star Lanes. Is that what it was called? In San all Jose? All, yeah. So we played there. And he was there. And um, I gave him a copy of our first record. I was like, hey, man, I don't know if you remember me. I drove you to the airport um, a few years ago. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. And I uh, gave him a copy of our record. And then he sent me a Facebook message, I think, a couple days later and was like, hey, like, we've been listening to your record, Asian Man. Like, it's really awesome. And I was like, oh, like, you know, I was super stoked, like, really, really thrilled. And I was like, oh, that's that's so amazing to hear. And then I just said, would you ever want to put out a Joyce Manor record? And then he said, yeah. And uh, we hopped on the phone and we talked about Screeching Weasel and we talked about Mattresses and we talked about M330. And because, uh, yeah, we talked about, like, back pain and, and Mattresses and M330. <laughs> And then he's like, so, he's like, so you want to do a record? And I was like, yeah. And then he's like, okay, cool. And then that was it. But it, but it was a total fucking dream come true for, uh, for me and Matt. Me and Matt were such Asian Man Records nerds and like huge Lawrence Arms fans, huge Alkaline Trio fans, huge, you know, fans of the Scott Punk, like Chinky, Slugurk, and MV330. Like just, it was, yeah. So to be uh, to be on Asian Man was kind of like getting the uh, – there's a very important seal of approval to us that was uh felt kind of like well we're done like we did it we we've, we've achieved all there is to achieve let's just hang it up you know yeah and i feel I, like we I really know anything about the label that put out your first record i mean i think they were like a hardcore label right oh man yeah it's like a it's like a orange county hardcore label and they were the only people interested like it wasn't like anyone else was like we want to put out your record so the fact that that dude is willing to press a thousand records I was certain, I was like absolutely certain he was going to have 999 of them like underneath his bed and in his closet for the rest of his life. But I was like, I almost felt bad. I was like letting him do it, you know, because I I wanted to have like a copy on vinyl and be like, whoa, we made a record, you know. But I was certain that like the record we were making, you know, like it's kind of a scrappy pop punk thing that's, you know, just like scratch you know what i mean like this it was just not gonna go over with uh 
the people that listen to that stuff on that label. Yeah. Um, I, pro- I just remember at the time seeing, seeing that it was coming out on some hardcore label that I'd never heard of and being kind of blown away. Cause I, I felt like from an outside perspective, I felt like you guys had all this, you know, buzz. I mean, I was super excited about you guys. And so then when you just kind of put it out with a hardcore label, I was like, okay, they, they must be like homies or something. No. Yeah. And it then, was literally the first it made person. So much more sense to put out a record on, on Asian man. Like when, totally. that, when that came to fruition, I was just like, this seems like a total no brainer. Oh man. It made so much more sense for us. And like, honestly, like the, putting it on the hardcore label, like it was, it was great because a lot of people heard it and really embraced it, but it really didn't feel like we were playing to people who um, we had much in common with, you know, like as far as other bands that we liked or just like kind of dudes we were, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was very, it was like hardcore kids and we were just, we weren't really hardcore kids. And uh, so there was kind of a disconnect for a long time between like us and I feel like a lot of our fans, but once we were on Asian man, it was like the curly haired nerds just came out of the woods and it was awesome. It was just like, Oh, thank fucking God. You know? Like, <laughs> and, and we met a lot of lovely people and it was like, it felt really fun to just kind of uh, be playing a dorks like us, you know what I mean? And not kind of like cool guy, hardcore, but kind of bro macho people yeah, definitely. that we didn't have anything in fucking common with. Um, but uh, that being said, like it was six one three one was huge for us and did a shitload for us. Um, but yeah, Asian man makes it a lot more sense for us. Totally. Did, yeah. did the the buzz that you guys started to get was that through like just kind of gigging, or was the was the the label that put your album out? Did that kind of start getting people to to interested in reviewing it and start talking about it on blogs and stuff? No, it was um so. English Work Standard broke up, and then after we broke up, the band split into two bands, and we both used the same kid to play drums. We used this kid, Elliot, who was like, he was still in high school at the time, and he played in a band called Two, well, sorry, he, he was good at drums. So he played in my friend's power violence band called Duke Dukem Forever, and he played in uh, in a band with me and Matt called Fever Kids, and he was good at, he's really good at drums, and uh, he eventually got kind of Two members of Duke Nukem Forever got picked up by other bands. Sam went to play in this band called Trash Talk, who were really popular. Mm-hmm. And um, Elliot went to play in this band called Touche Amore. So we kind of had like friends in high places who were like doing well. And Touche Amore were on 6131. And they were all kind of doing well in this like hardcore world, like around this festival called Sound and Fury that they do. It's like, uh, yeah, it's like, right yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, you, you get the idea. So, I had some friends who were doing well in that world and I was, you know, excited for them, but also like jealous. Cause I felt like I was, you know, I, I had like a gift as a songwriter and it was going to go unrecognized and I was just going to, you know, been a, could have been sort of, you know, cause I was, I think I was 20, like 23 or I, I couldn't, yeah, I was like 23 or 24 at this point. And then, uh, Really, just Elliot and Sam from Trash Talk and Touche Amore, they were just really good to us and put us on shows and told with that five song EP that you, that you heard, Adam, they like shared that with people and then people liked it and wanted to put us on shows. And, uh, and that, that's kind of how it, how the buzz really got started. And, I see. um, 
Yeah, and the people from uh, VLHS, uh, Tim and Marty, who book shows, like they they were super cool and put us on a bunch of shows with um, more bands, kind of like from the fest world. Like uh, when like Dead to Me or like Good Luck would come through, they would they would put us on uh, on shows with them. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. And obviously you were psyched to be on Asian men and, and you, you wanted to jump on it, but were you getting at that point, were you getting offers from other labels besides Asian man or what, did that come after the Asian man release? No, we never have got offers from any label except we got a one time the dude from fucking red cross emailed us. Uh, and he's like, Hey, I heard your guys record here at our first record. And he was like, I heard your record and it's awesome. He's like, and I'm from Torrance. And we were like, oh shit. And uh, he was doing AR for a major label. And um, we, he's like, it'd be great to like get lunch with you guys or whatever. And we were like, fuck yeah, like let's do it, you know? Um, Cause I, yeah, he, he was, I don't know, he was like, damn, it's the guy from Red Cross. That'd be cool. Um, it's one of the Mc, McDonald brothers or like anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he never responded. I don't know. We, we emailed back and then, and then we just never heard back. So I don't know what happened. I maybe went in a spam folder. We had a weird email. Our, our email was at a uh, hellokitty.com and uh, <laughs> it just, it might've gone in a spam folder or some shit. So we just never went back. Man, that's so weird to me just cause I don't know, like the strength of that EP alone, I thought was so good. And then just to hear that, like you just ended up putting out with a hardcore label just because it was the only people that showed interest. And then from there, just, just Mike showing interest. It just goes to show that from like an outside perspective, as far as music goes, like it can look like a band has all this, you know, opportunity and stuff happening. And from the inside, it can just be really like oh, isolated. Weird. You know what? That's not true. A really, a, you know, who hit us up and it was really weird was um, John Feldman from Goldfinger. Oh, shit. And we were actually interested in talking to him because he had produced like um Miley Cyrus or some shit or, or Hillary Duff. Maybe he had done some yeah. like, yeah. some like mega star of, shit. Of big stuff now. Yeah. I, I don't think he had done, maybe he had done like all time low or some kind of like really big warp Tory pop punk stuff, but he hadn't like, he kind of had a little bit of a Renaissance with like doing blink, you know, like he started doing the blink, those blink newer blink records with Matt Skiba on them. Right. But, but at this time, he was working with Red Bull Records and <laughs> and and he was like reaching out on behalf of Red Bull Records to like to do a Joyce Manor record. And um, and that was actually before um, the record on Asian Man. So that would have been if we had decided to do go with John Feldman and record and have him produce us, we could have had our second record come out on Red Bull Records, which I think yeah, I, I obviously would have been career suicide. But yeah. part of me was like morbidly curious to be like, no one would have seen that coming. You know what I mean? Like, we just go from like that first record to just like the most like slick, 
I just, I've always been kind of curious what our fucking songs would sound like if someone yeah. just, you know, cause like we have a couple of pretty catchy parts, but like, what if you just slick really, the fuck out of them? Oh yeah. Just really wrung it out. You know what I mean? And kind of yeah. made like, but, but I, I, I hate how all that should sound. So I would never yeah. actually do it. It would, but, be, it would be an interesting experiment. Like I would, in an alternate reality, I would love to hear that, but I would love to do it and then not put it out. You know what I mean? Just have it to pull out of parties yeah. or something. Like, yo, you guys want to hear some fucking weird shit? Like, check this out. You know, but uh, out of a party. yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was kind of the only time anybody like that ever reached out. And then with Epitaph, we reached out to them because Mike, Mike actually kind of um, forced us to do it. He was, he said, who's going to do your next record? And we were like, I mean, you, like, we're not, no one, it, it's, it's been great. He pay, he pays us on time. He, the record was always in, in stock and he's awesome to deal with like it was it was cool but he he kind of insisted we go to a bigger label and so um he said what about epitaph and i was like man epitaph you know i don't want to fucking be on epitaph uh and then he's a kind why not and i didn't really have a good reason i was like oh, i don't know they put out some kind of lame stuff he's like who gives a fuck like they're they're good people and they're a good label and and i was like you know you're right like why why, why wouldn't i want to they have a lot of resources and they don't fuck their bands over. Like why not? You know? So um, through a mutual friend, we reached out to them and they were really excited about it, but they, they didn't really, then they pursued us. Then, then, then it was kind of like, huh. we were like, huh, maybe, but we, we kind of initiated that. So you weren't on their radar before you started that conversation. Then I think an employee, this guy, Matt McGreevy, who's been there forever. He's, and we've always, he's great. We've worked with him. He, he had like seen us and knew who we were, but they were definitely not trying to sign us mm-hmm. until we were like, Hey, do you want to sign us? And they were like, yeah, that would be cool. And they were like, Oh, well maybe. And then, and then they got pretty like, they really wanted, wanted to sign us, but, but it was at first it was our idea. That's where I don't think I've ever heard a story like that where it's just like, Oh yeah. And then we, uh, we pursued epitaph and then they were like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah it, it was weird it, it was really weird it it was um they, they just said yes like the email just said like yeah sure <laughs> and i was like oh well let, let us think about it you know like we're like okay well we don't have a record yet and then we made the record and i actually i actually paid for the record myself so we had a finished record and we were like who wants it and then they were kind of really the only label who like actually wanted it like polyvinyl kind of offered but they, they didn't really have the resources or the, they weren't, they didn't really have the money to put into a, yeah, they just didn't have this. They, they, they weren't as confident that they could do something with it. You know, if it came out on polyvinyl, especially at that, now they have like Jeff Rosenstock and shit and stuff's different, but this was before Pitchfork like reviewed emo pop. And so polyvinyl was kind of like, it was a little, it was a lot left field for them, you know? So your experience with labels, like, have they, have you always had like total control or was there ever like situations where they were like, you know, they just, they were kind of nudging you in a direction that maybe wasn't your inclination. Dude, we've had the, the, the best experience with that where our transition from Epitaph, from Asian Man Epitaph has been exactly the same. I like, I, I, I'll come up with some artwork and I'll like send it over and they'll be like, looks great. I'll be like, here are the songs. They're like, awesome. Love it. <laughs> and then I, and then I'll be like, you know, like right before it's being sound suppressed, I'm like, no, I want I want to change the order of the songs or I want to do something. They're like, no problem. Let's go ahead and change. You know what I mean? Like they 
everything is totally up to us. Almost to where like Brett is really helpful and like offers great suggestions, but he's he's very artist first. Where he's like, it's your call. At the end of the day, it's your record, and like you you, you know what's best for your record. And to a to a shocking degree, you know, like I mm-hmm. I. I always have like an album cover that I'm going to use until like kind of the last minute. And I'm like, no, no, I found something better. I found something better. And a lot of my like working album covers, I've been fucking hideous. You know what I mean? Like it's like, like a super pixelated JPEG like that, that I'm like, it's okay. Like the picture is so good. Like it doesn't matter that it's, and they're like, okay. You know? And so I'm like pretty shocked at what they're, uh, what they'll let us do or try to you know they let us make short records with uh yeah they let, they let us do our thing it's great mm-hmm. um That's right. i want to i want to go back a little bit talk about some of your ska days um oh yeah you talked about how you know you you were you were introduced to ska from mainstream stuff and then you, you got into it later kind of after ska died but the there was this person that kind of introduced you to like basically the world of less less popular or not mainstream ska yeah. and uh like he was this like like kind of guy that you mistook for being would be the sort like a resource for depressing music can you tell can you tell that story yeah david so my friend david morrill i didn't know him yet he was just walking around eighth grade wearing all black and i was like this dude's into fucking sisters of mercy or some shit like you know like he's got this he's gonna let me know about some real shit <laughs> and uh and because i was in the misfits and i was kind of getting interested in like i like the afi and, but i knew there was like some real shit you know what i mean like you're just kind of aware like you see like older kids at the mall and you can tell that they're into some real shit and you don't know what it is but you kind of want you're like you're really curious and you don't know how you're gonna find out you know like you're like fuck how am i gonna but here's a kid who's my age and like he seems to know about like the real shit because he seems like a weirdo and he was a fucking weirdo and he is a weirdo, but, um, I love him, but he's a, a truly bizarre guy. And, uh, he was dressed on all black because of, uh, star Wars. He was like, Oh no, I'm not in a goth. I dress like Luke Skywalker. Uh, and he's like, I like ska. And, and he's like, he's like, I'm, yeah. and I was like, Oh, ska. Like, I was like, Oh, okay. It's so like Goldfinger and shit. He's like, no, bro. He's like, let's go bowling. He's like, He's in like let's go bowling. He's into like Scavuvi and the Eptones. He was into like, and I was like, damn, okay. And so, so I just started. We just started walking around, and I, I walked. I remember walking home with him, and he would just started singing like "Cat with Two Heads," and I, I was like, this is the best song ever. You know, like I love this "Cat with Two Heads," and he's just crushing it. And then I get home and download "Cat with Two Heads" right away, and it's just like identical. He he did it such justice, like it's unbelievable. Um, and, uh, yeah, to that, that, that's when I really got like, went all in on ska. And that's when I started like dressing ska and like showing up to school, like as a ska kid, like, and, uh, that lasted for about two years where I was like, I was ska. What was your, what was your ska outfit? Yeah. Dickie, black Dickie shorts, Chuck Taylors with like checkers on the side and some like, I had some spikes some like metal spikes I put um, between the laces and the rubber toe and some black socks pulled up. And then I had a, like a white button up shirt with a tie. Sometimes I'd like, I'd wear a plaid tie or like a, just a black tie and I had pins on the tie and like 
pretty like brutal acne like on my uh like below my mouth you know and like gel in my hair like like spiked or like not really spiked hair but like forward and then flipped up in the front kind of like a malcolm in the middle ass haircut and uh yeah uh that, w- that was the look and uh yeah did, did... I-, I looked insane but uh it was, <laughs> it was fun and it worked too because because girls would kind of like notice you they'd be like hey why are you wearing a tie you know like because i'm fucking scott and they're like that's <laughs> you know that's it it was it was kind of better than being just like invisible before that. I feel like I was so unaware of what I was wearing or doing. You know what I mean? I, I guess I was just a kid, but yeah, I you're kind of from the same area as as the pharmaceutical bandits, right? Uh, I live I live near them now. They're from Seal yeah. Beach, yeah. and um, I live in Long Beach now. Yeah, I've been in Long Beach for like uh, fifteen years or some shit. Did you ever Did you ever see them while you were doing your ska, ska phase? I saw Steve Choi at the vegan restaurant I worked at for a little while. And um, (laughs) I, so the guy who recorded the first Joyce Manor record, he played a band called Silver Snakes and Steve Choi was rocking a Silver Snake shirt. And I didn't know Steve Choi or really who Steve Choi was. I know he was in the Chinkies, right? Yeah. He was in Chinkies too. Yeah. So I kind of was aware of him and I was like, I think he might also be in our expanded. And I think he was like from around here. I was kind of knew who he was. And then, um, Mike Park had, had suggested him to fill in on drums. Like we needed a fill in drummer. And he was like, Oh, my, my friend, Steve Choi um, can play drums really good. You should ask him or whatever. And then it never ended up happening, but I texted back and forth with him. Anyway, this story goes absolutely fucking nowhere, but um, that, would, that would have been interesting. He no, was exactly. also in slow burning for a while. Oh, was he? That, what did he play? That was how he got into RX. Oh, crazy. They like toured together or something. Well, and I uh, think he he was, and then he was staying with you. He, he lived with the Slow Gherkin guys. Oh, uh, came to stay there, and then they ended up talking about Jade Tree because he had okay. a Jade Tree poster. Nice. And he ended up in the band a little while later. Well, anyway, I, I was waiting on Steve Troy without realizing it, and I was like, "Oh, cool shirt." And he's like, "Oh yeah, uh, whatever." Something and I kind of kind of clicked, and and he's like, "Oh, you play music?" Because like, I'm Joyce Manor. He's like, "Oh, I was gonna play drums for you." I was like, "Oh, you're Steve Choi." And I noticed that the other guy he's with is the singer of RX Bandits, okay. Matt. Matt. And I was like, oh, fuck. I'm waiting on the RX Bandits. No idea. Um, but uh, yeah, nice guys. They're, so they're around. They yeah, the, around. The reason I asked was because, I mean, one, they were around. Like, I, I was kind of imagining, you know, you skanking at one of their early shows when they were like way more flicka flicka ska. Yeah. But then also, yeah. Just, just the way you talk and your mannerisms sound so much like Matt Embry to really? me. Like I've, I've spent a lot of time with Matt and like talking to you, oh, you sound man. like related to Matt basically. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Weird. I, yeah. I think it's just the regional. Maybe. Something in the water, I think down there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's like, a, he's like on like a muted uh, REI kind of, trip right or like not are you like uh like earth tones you know like i'm oh, not definitely. i'm not really on that earth tone trip no but, no but the, like underneath underneath all the you know accoutrements of of what you guys have going on like just the you guys just have a very similar like vibe oh wow like as far as cool. like how how you like interact with the world and talk and like i mean even even kind of like the lankiness of both of you guys is 
Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Dude, I, you don't even know, man. I got ripped over quarantine now. I'm fucking, I'm like, <laughs> doing I'm like that, that comedian. Yeah. What's that guy, Kamal Nanjali? He's all fucking huge now. Oh, yeah. You, put, you pulled the Kamal? Yeah, yeah. Dude, we played a show with him one time. Isn't that crazy? You uh, played a show it was with Kamal? He opened for us. Um, like just do a stand-up I, comedy, comedy? Yeah, yeah. Pizza Place. Wow. Isn't that man. so fucking weird? It was like, it was out kind of near like Riverside. We just played a pizza place in 2012 and he opened. And I, 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 uh, I didn't see a set or anything, but someone brought it to my attention recently. They like pulled up the, the flyer and they're like, dude, did you know this? Is that, that guy who got buff opened for you? I was like, oh shit. Has Joyce Manor <laughs> played, played any shows with ska bands? I mean, not including uh, Narboots. Not including the nine-piece Narboots. <laughs> Thanks, God. Fuck. I got, I, I want to say yes. You know what we kind of played with was in New Orleans, there's a scene, um, I think it's called Community Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fatter Than yeah. Albert or, and those guys. It wasn't Fatter it wasn't fat Than but yeah, it's that crew. Maybe all people. And I think, I think they put on a show for us and one of the first bands had, maybe had Scott parts. And mm. I was super into it. I was like, I was really stoked. They have a new band called Bad Operation that's really mm. Did they sample, did they sample, or like kind of like do a nod to the Impossibles on the first song? Yeah, at the beginning of the record, yeah. It's like, hi, we're Bad Operation. Yeah, hi, we're Bad Operation. They do like the little yeah, thing yeah. the Impossibles record. Yeah, I sent yeah. that to my, I, I work on music with um, Rory from the Impossibles. Oh, and, sick. Uh, yeah, uh, he's, he's a fucking genius. Um, uh, I sent him that and he was, he was stoked with the little like yell in the beginning and everything. Uh, yes. Yeah, so when did you start working with Rory? Was that on your third or fourth album? Uh, fifth. Fifth. Oh, okay. And so how did that relationship start? I know you were a fan of the impossibles for a while, right? Oh, that was like, when I found the impossibles, I was like, this is like, if I could, custom design a band like a band i dreamed up you know it's like yeah it's like ska but then it's like weezer and it's you know like uh yeah i was i love the impossible still i, I think they're that rory is a really really talented songwriter um and uh he had a couple projects like after the impossibles when he kind of stopped doing ska that didn't last super long he had a, he had one project called the 20 go to 10 and mm-hmm. and i remember them having a song that was like super good and it was only on a comp. It was on a Fuel by Ramen comp. And and I loved the song. And I could still kind of hear it in my head. And I was like, fuck, like, how the fuck am I going to find that? And I, I looked for it on the internet and I couldn't find it. So I was like, I'll just message the guy. I don't, I don't think he'll be like, he'll probably be cool about it. So I just messaged him on Twitter. And I was like, hey, man, like, uh, big fan. This might, this might be weird, but I was trying to find this kind of weird MP3 that was running a few had laying around and he, and he did and he was stoked and he was like, Oh, like he, he was a fan too. He, he was, he was like heart tattoos an awesome song or whatever. And I was like, Oh shit. Cool. And, um, I was like, I, he, I know he'd done some production work and I was like, it would be rad to work on a record together. And he was like, Oh, totally. But he's, but he works full time. He works for Apple like 40 hours a week. Um, and so he's like, I, I can't realistically really, commit to producing a record but he's like if you ever want to do something like over email you know like send me stuff and i'll send it back like he's like i'd love to do that and so i kind of thought maybe he was bluffing a little bit and so i was just like i'm just gonna i have this song that i'm kind of like working on and it's not really finished but i just kind of 
threw it together and finished it up really quick just to just to send him something to because like oh, it'd be so cool to work with Rory and uh like lo and behold like a week or two later he, he sent it back and it was awesome like I I didn't really have high hopes for it but um he did, he did a great job with it hmm. and then that's how what, we started what did he do with it? I sent him acoustic guitar and vocals only and he arranged I sent him a verse as it's just a verse and a chorus, I think, right? Yeah, I sent him a verse and a chorus only. And he, like, arranged it. He played bass on it, put drums on it, sang harmonies, and arranged a song and made, like, a two-minute, 30-second song out of, like, a 40-second acoustic guitar and vocals stems that I sent him. Um, and it, it was really cool. And I, I really loved what he did with it. I kind of wanted to... He, after the Impossibles, he did a band called Slow Reader, which is more kind of like, I guess you kind of say it, it sounds like maybe like a little bit like Elliot Smith. Like it's like a little bit Beatlesy, and yeah, it, it's, and I, I was kind of hoping he would do something like that. And he totally did. Like he totally got what I, what I was kind of uh, hoping he would do. I gave him like the kind of song that I, I hoped he would kind of give that treatment to. And uh, yeah, he nailed it. And so you guys have continued to work together or just, the, yeah, the on, on this. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then if I'm stuck on something or like, I feel like he, at this point we've like emailed songs back and forth to each other so many times that I kind of feel like I, I know, or I feel like I know which ones he's going to like knock out of the park. Cause sometimes he'll send me something back and I won't be like, it won't really be what I imagined exactly. Or, or I, I feel like maybe, the song just isn't that good. So there isn't that much he can do with it. Like the better the song I send it, send to him, the easier it is for him to get inspired and send me back yeah. something that makes sense. You know, like if you have a well-written song, it kind of, the song tells you what it wants you to do to it, you know? So if I send him a pretty whatever song that it's kind of like, I don't know, man, I could do this to it. Um, but uh, so, so sometimes I'll just have a song like, Oh man, Rory would fucking kill this one. And he just writes really great parts. And, uh, for this button, this record we're working on right now, there's some parts where like he'll send me something back and I'll, I'll use like some of what he sent me. Like, I'll be like, Oh, I really liked these, um, kind of the harmonies he put on this part, or I really like what he like added a little section that really, that really works. And it's, it's just, he's a great resource to have to just kind of bounce ideas off of because he's super musical and, and really has a mind for hooks and really knows what he's doing. Oh, definitely. Did you, were you ever into the stereo? Uh, you know, I, I strangely wasn't, um, I knew, I knew he was in the band, but I didn't realize what a, what kind of role he played. And he actually sent me recently, me and my girlfriend have been listening to it. It's a podcast about the stereo. And, uh, this story is fucking pretty fascinating. Like, I, yeah. I was like, I'm going to, I'll check it out, you know, like, cause it's my friend and sent me something. And I was like, all right, I'll listen to this podcast about a band. I, I don't really know, but it's like, it was a uh, pretty riveting and, uh, he did a great job producing it. It sounds like totally pro. And he's uh, got interviews with like Fall Out Boy and um, John Janik, who's like a big label guy. And just kind of like, and the, the, the members of the of the stereo. And there's a lot of drama. And there's a lot of. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. But I, I heard a couple songs through that. And um, yeah, I like it. I'm more, more of an Impossibles guy. Yeah. Did you ever. So the. So the stereo was it was half the Impossibles, and then the other half was Jamie from Animal Chin. Animal Chin, yeah. Did you ever hear that 
band? They had a song on, um, I think, Mail Order is Still Fun. And yeah. it, it didn't really do much for me. I think um, I think that one also had really weird snare tone. <laughs> it was like one yeah. of those weird pingy snares. And every time the drummer would hit it, it was like a different pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I never, never got into Animal Chin really, or the stereo. Speaking of those comps, the the Asian man comps. Uh-huh. What songs, like, do you remember any of those songs in particular standing out from like bands that? Yeah, for, all... like for instance, like there was a band on Mrs. The Scott Two, this song called by this band called Absence. The song was called Power, and it's the only song I've ever heard of that band, and it's so weird. It's such a weird song, but I I love it. Oh, and I, I, I found the album online, and I I never bothered to even download it or listen to it. Um, dude, there's tons of bands like that. Do you remember the Schlepptones? So I don't, I I forget what comp they're on, but they're on an Asian man comp. But they're called the Schlepptones, and they yeah. have a song called "Too Little Time to Waste." It's fucking amazing. Like, it's more kind of like in the vein of like Oingo Boingo, but uh, I I've never heard anything else by them. But it's it's I think pretty sure it's a Scott song. Um, I think it might be on Mail Order is Fun. It's on the first one. And the band never had a record on Asian Man, but they have a song on Mail Order is Fun. The Schleptones. Too Little Time to Waste. It's In my head, it's it's really awesome. But it it, it might be kind of gnarly. <laughs> yeah, some of, those, some of those songs definitely end up end up that way. Like um, the Unsteady song that's on Mrs. Scott 2 is like this like weird hardcore hybrid with these super oh, like fuck, insane style parts, but then Mike put out their album and it's like more like almost like traditional. Scholars. It's like root Scott. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I was really disappointed by it. Cause I wanted this like really weird. Oh, what's there. the unsteady song called? Is it about getting like pulled over or something? No, oh, what I is that? It song? Like, it was like really squealy. Like it starts with like a big, crazy metal scream. Yeah. Oh, that's killing me. I don't want to look it up. I want to like pull it from my mind, but I can't. Uh, fuck. Unsteady. The other Misfits of Scott 2 song that really stuck out to me was um, this band Thumper that had a song called Backstabber. And oh, yeah. The choruses were just like these like weird breakdowns. I feel like such a poser. I don't think I had Misfits of Scott 2. Oh, Is that the one with the kid on it? Had the kid on yeah. the bondage yeah. pants? I must have fucking had that. But I don't remember those songs. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> there was so many that, that he, Mike put so many songs on Misfits of Ska too. Like Misfits of Ska one was like every sort of band, every significant band of the time that that was basically kind of like coming up in the scene. And then Misfits of Two was like every band that sent him a demo, pretty much. Yeah, just like, I'll put it on there. So that's kind of why I thought he was going to put out my shitty band. Well, I didn't think my band was shitty at the time. I thought we were, what we were doing was like absolutely brilliant and groundbreaking, but it was horrible. <laughs> uh, I but I was like, cool. I was like, I was like, Oh, as soon as he hears this, like he's, he's going to flip, you know, like it's not unreasonable. Like he's, he put out that weird comp that was just like, it was just all the weird songs from demos. Oh yeah. And then oh, I think man. he ended up putting like a, like one of the songs from the, like a, uh, the dude from Streetlight Manifesto's acoustic project on there, Botar. Like, yeah, he put he yeah. put one of those Botar songs on there, and that was like the one of the first things that that was put out by that. There was this great dude called Mike Mal Mike Mowry, and he his band had a song on there. But I saw him play at Chris Murray's thing. Chris Murray would do like a 
at the knitting factory we would do blue beat lounge and this dude mike mowry played and he was like he was he was almost kind of like a jack johnson type guy but he played ska songs mm-hmm. and he's a great songwriter with a really smooth good voice and he was just kind of like a low-key wire glasses baggy jeans guy i forget where he's from he's from like the south or something but um his he had a band like a full band and they had a song on that asian man comp um that was like demo submissions nice that was a cool thing i really liked that comp it was so weird i remember being an asian man and him just being like what about this song what about this song yeah different songs to me I was like, those are all great. There were so many, but I think that really speaks to like the, um, like the Misfits of Scott too, just having like a slew of songs. Like, I feel like it's, it's not that Mike doesn't want to put out stuff. It's just that there's so much that he could totally. put out. I'm going to listen to Misfits of Scott too. Yeah. You can hear a flat planet song. <laughs> You're on there. <laughs> yeah. That was our one big, that and Bay area Scott. That's the only things that we released in an official way besides like demo tapes. Oh man, do you did you guys have a lot of Scott comps? I had a lot of Scott comps. I had a oh yeah, yeah. Ma- ma- mash it up. Mm-hmm. The yeah. bump. dude, Boston. that was yeah. yeah. It was mostly bad, but there's a great song called "Miriam, Your Toast Is Burning." Do you know that song? <laughs> I'm not sure. What, do you know what the band is? That the name of the band? No, the song, the song. The song goes "Miriam, Your Toast Is Burning." They they sound British, but it's like a fucking great kind of two tone sounding song called miriam your toast is burning and it's it's a fucking hit but that yeah the rest of that that comp is pretty i mean it's okay but yeah that, that song is great and really worth a listen oh yeah like um i remember california ska quake that was a that was one i really liked a lot that was like a really early california thing i think it had like no doubt the ska no doubt you know kind of oh, yeah. one of the first ones but the song that i loved on that the more than anything was that was the first time i heard dancehall crashers and they had the that was kind of the, the earlier version of dance hall crashers where it was more, more traditional sounding with horns yeah, and stuff. And they totally. had this song called he wants me back. It's really oh, like, really good, like catchy poppy, like ska song. And yeah. Did, did that. Tim Armstrong, did he write any of those songs? I know he started the band. He but bounced I don't know so he fast. I don't know. I yeah. don't know if he did, you know, I mean, I, I don't even yeah. think this, the singers, I don't even know if the singers that became known in the band were even in the band before oh, he left. Word. The name yeah. just kind of carried on. Yeah. yeah. My girlfriend toured with uh, one of the guys from Dancehall Crashers. His kid has a band on Asian Man. Currently? Uh, yeah, they're called Small Crush. Hmm. The the singer, um, her dad is, is in fucking Dancehall Crashers. I think he's, he's one of the guitar players. Um, I got really stoked when, when I found that out. She's, my girlfriend's like, oh yeah, uh, I guess the band we're on tour with, like, their dad is in dancehall crashers. It's like, oh shit, no way. Wait, so what band's your girlfriend in? Uh, Peach Kelly Pop. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I like Peach Kelly Kelly Pop. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> you better. <laughs> yeah, right. We we really appreciate you have, coming on the show. Oh, great man, guest. Anytime. Yeah. So fun. Yeah. I hope it's coherent to anyone. That it's like these fucking guys talk about unknown ska bands for the whole time. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my Substack at 
aaroncarns.substack.com. And if you'd like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Sky, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we leave you by saying, Ska, now more than ever. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.